You'll notice that Pastor Chris did not get the uh, uniform of the day look. If you remember seeing Pastor Alan up here, I know you blew it. That's, I know it. That's okay. Hey, it's that time of year. Uh, we are studying the letter of 1 Peter. And in this letter to Christians who had, were, and probably would experience persecution, trials, and difficulties, Peter exhorts them to keep on keeping on. Don't lose heart. Don't give in. Don't give up. And he holds out before them the great hope that believers have in Christ, the hope of a guaranteed destiny. This is a hope that must be part of the foundation for any Christian who's facing adversity. It protects us from discouragement, from despair, from the temptation to give up. And this hope, Peter says, involves an inheritance in heaven. An inheritance is protected by the power of God, not by how strong your faith is, not by whether or not you're tempted to doubt God's promise, because you see under and around your faith, and as puny as it might be, is the faithfulness of God. In light of that promise of hope, we saw last week that we are called to holiness. God has declared us righteous, not guilty. And by his grace, he sets us apart for his divine purposes. And this leads Peter to exhort us to do several things. We looked in depth at last week. Uh, we're to keep sober in spirit. We're to set our hope fully on the grace of God. We are to be holy, that is, to choose to live as people who have been set apart as different. We're to live in reverence and awe of God who will judge our works. And we are to earnestly love one another as God loves. And so Peter's going to flow right on into his, his message to us by introducing it with the word so, or maybe therefore. And it, it hearkens us back to what he just has finished saying in chapter 1, particularly in verses 23 to 25. And in light of the fact that new life has been imparted to believers through the living word of God, a new kind of behavior is demanded. And Peter starts to talk about this back in chapter 1, verse 15. And he uses the word conduct. In fact, this is so much into his mind, he's going to use that term seven times in this letter. So let's, let's go to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2 today. I want to read the passage, just have you follow along. And then I want to summarize the structure as I see it. And then we're going to dig into the text itself. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 1. He writes, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, 
Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So let's start with an overview. Because as I've looked and thought about this passage, there are some things that kind of jumped out at me. There are three sets of related concepts in there. The first is put away, long for. The second is abstain, keep. And the third, got to dig a little bit for this one, but is proclaim and live. Three sets that he deals with. And inside those three, there are several propositional statements, positional statements. Uh, you could call them identifying phrases that declare who we are in Christ. And these are truths, Peter says, that should motivate and dictate the kind of lives we live as those who are God's children. And I think when you put them together, what you see is Peter puts them into two groupings. They're not meant to be separated, but, but you can look at it that way. There's living stones. There's a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. Each of these is a part of this beautiful tapestry of what we call the church that entity of believers in Jesus and his redemptive work. So let's begin by looking at these before we move on to the exhortations about our conduct, about how we should live our lives. Peter sets out the foundation, the base of our identity as believers, and he says that it is Christ himself. He's described as a living stone, chosen but rejected he, he, he's rejected, really, by official Israel because he didn't fit the part of Messiah. He didn't look like Messiah. He didn't treat them like they thought the Messiah ought to. But in reality, Peter says, he was the cornerstone. Now, cornerstones were often huge and, and at great cost and care were found, moved, and put into place. And the rest of the building was positioned upon and determined after the cornerstone was put in place. That's the most important stone in an entire building was the cornerstone. And so it is with Christ. And in our identification with him, then Peter paints several pictures for his readers. He says, for example, that we are living stones. 
We are living because we are connected to the living one, to Christ himself. One of the great words used by the Apostle John in his writings is the word life. And so as Jesus is life, as he is living, so too in him are we living. And Peter says then that these living stones are being built together into a spiritual house. The Apostle Paul used the same imagery in describing what we call the church. Look at this from the letter of Ephesians chapter 2. He's speaking of Gentile believers being joined together with Jewish believers. And he writes this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place by the Spirit. What a marvelous picture of the church. A building comprised of living stones that are being fitted together to form a beautiful temple within which the Spirit of God dwells. Peter goes on to say that we are a holy priesthood. Uh, this imagery draws Gentile believers to identify with Jewish believers who still reveled in the majesty of Herod's temple in Jerusalem. This idea of believers being a part of a priesthood was one of the centerpieces of reformist Martin Luther's thinking. He saw every believer as part of a new priesthood, a priesthood of the Spirit being joined with Christ through faith. When you think back into the Old Testament scriptures, one of the primary functions of the Jewish priest was to offer sacrifices. And Peter picks up this imagery here and says that we who believe in Jesus likewise should offer up spiritual sacrifices. Now, we know he's not talking about animal sacrifices here. That, that, that's gone. Um, there are other passages of scripture, though, that give us, I think, some insight into what these uh, sacrifices might be. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Paul, as he transitions from doctrine to practice, in his letter to the Romans, writes this, Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. The author of the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 13, says, through him, that is, through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So we're starting to get a picture here of what does it mean for us now in New Testament days, in the church age, to offer up sacrifices. These, the ones that are acceptable to God are a dedicated life, a consecrated life. It's a life where the praise of God is on our lips and reflected in our living. Well, after talking about the rejection of Christ, Peter turns his thoughts back again to this aggregate of those who are part of God's family. And he brings up more imagery 
that should swell the confidence and assurance and faith of believers who are going through difficult times. Never lose sight in this letter of its context. Uh, the life situation of these Christians, they, they are buffeted by trials and tribulations. And so he brings these things to remind them of who they are and to encourage them to keep on keeping on in the midst of difficulties. And so these folks were, Peter says, and as we are, a chosen race. Now, Peter's readers were, were not to identify as Jews and Gentiles, but they were to identify as a people chosen by God. Uh, the word race here means a body with common descent, common life. And think about that. We're all born into God's family. We all have the same birth experience. Oh, the, 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 the circumstances are always different. But we share this common descent of being God's children, and we share a common life that we have in Christ. And then he goes on and he says that we are a royal priesthood. I think here again, he's appealing more to the kingship there of Christ and the relationship there. But I want to camp here for a moment because I want you to think about one of the stupendous benefits of being part of this priesthood. Uh, if you think back to the Old Testament tabernacle, to its structure, and we're going to put a, a screen up there so you can see, remember that the Holy of Holies represented the very presence of God. Remember also that only members of the priesthood could go into the holy place. And only one time a year did the high priest and only the high priest go beyond the veil that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies, and he would go in on the Day of Atonement and would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat that set upon the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of the people, that is, to cover them over for another year. When you come in the New Testament to the book of Hebrews, it is so Old Testament-like, if you recall that book, as it's showing what happens as we move from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from law to grace. But in that book, Jesus is described as our ultimate high priest, a high priest who entered into the very presence of God with his sacrifice, a sacrifice of blood. And his sacrifice of blood would not just cover over or atone for sins, but would actually forgive sin. So when Jesus died on the cross, this is, really, this is really exciting stuff, so stay with me. When Jesus dies on the cross, Matthew records in his gospel account that the veil separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place is torn in two from top to bottom. This thing was said to be about six inches thick. Now, when it did, it opened up access to the very presence of God. But the key question is, opened up to whom? Now, we might be tempted to say, well, everyone. No, that wouldn't be right. The answer is to those who are allowed into the holy place. Uh, who was allowed into the holy place? Members of the priesthood. Only priests could be there. And so who is a part of that priesthood after the sacrifice of Christ? Every true believer. That's why Luther's perspective on and declaration of the universal priesthood of believers is such a critical truth. 
Because now we have access into the very presence of God because of the fact that we are part of this holy, royal priesthood. You and I have access into the very presence of God because the veil was torn, the separation was obliterated. When Paul writes his letter to the Romans and he comes to chapter 5, he begins to enumerate some of the benefits that are ours by virtue of being justified by faith. And in there, he includes this benefit, 5.2. Through him that is Christ, you have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. In the letter of Ephesians, Paul speaks of the plan of God's grace to be displayed through the church. And then he says this in Ephesians 3. This was according to the eternal purpose that he is realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and what? access with confidence through faith in him. This is one of those great truths that somehow we just miss. We have, we have access into the very presence of God. The Old Testament days, the people didn't. It was all through the priests, the Jewish priests, who mediated on their behalf. And only once a year, the high priest going in into the Holy of Holies. But now that's been torn apart and we now, who are part of this priesthood, have free access to the very character of God. We are living in the palace. As Ron Denwin said, if you starve inside the palace, that's your fault. We live in the palace with free access. Peter goes on to say we're not only part of a chosen race and a royal priesthood, we are a holy nation. Now remember that the meaning of holy is set apart or different. We are part of something that God has identified as being different from everything else, from the world around us. We are a set-apart people, a sanctified people. And then he concludes with this, we are a people for God's own possession. What another incredible thing. We belong to God. We're his possession. We are told, and I think we really know it deep down, is that every person longs for a sense of belonging. Belonging to something, to someone. And, and, and what, what greater thing could be said about us than that we are God's own? This is how special that you are to God. He's chosen you. He says you are mine for my own possession. Psalm 100 makes this point. When the psalmist writes, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now listen, more important than who you are is whose you are. Let me repeat that. More important than who you are is whose you are. Our identity is in Christ. It isn't just an individual identity. It's, it's a corporate identity, a group identity. So he talks about being a house, a priesthood, a race, a nation, a people. Listen, the church is not about lone rangers. We are joined together with fellow believers into a holy temple of God. That's why it's an emphasis at Knollwood for you to connect in a community group, in a small group of some kind. Uh, life is meant to be lived in community, and that's why Peter uses these particular terms. Now, let's, let's step away from those 
And let's look at these three related concepts in the passage. They all have to do with how we live our life in the response to who we are in Christ. Here's the first one. Put away, long for. That's how Peter opens chapter 2. And he exhorts them and us to set aside sin. And he singles out five particular sins that these Christians apparently were guilty of. Interestingly, you know what they all have to do with? Relationships. Relationships. And so we're to put them away. The word literally means stripping off. It's a very descriptive word. It's, we're to strip off evil, wicked ways, just like you would strip off a dirty, soiled piece of clothing. Look at the sins he mentions specifically. First is malice. It's a real general term. It just refers to any kind of wickedness. And then he says that we are to put off deceit. That, that has to do with craftiness, with deceitfulness. Um, it's, it's consciously deceiving others to attain one's own ends. It, it's the vice of someone whose motives are never pure. And then he says hypocrisy. This has to do with impersonation or deception. Um, it's hiding one's true identity behind a mask. It's, it's speaking words that are very different from one's true feelings. It's faking it, if you will. And then envy. This, this is the feeling of displeasure when one sees or hears about another's advantage or prosperity. We, we envy other people's success, don't we? And slander. Uh, another word that we might use here would be gossip. Uh, it involves defaming or speaking against someone, usually when he or she is not present. You know that? It's much easier to do it when they're not around. You know, it's the old, well, I wouldn't say anything about him if it wasn't good. And boy, is this good. Can you see how these particular sins are singled out because of the strife and the dissension and the conflict that this would cause within the church? Remember, we are imperfect people, flawed with sin, put into a different relationship with other imperfect people who are deeply flawed with sin. But God expects us to put those sins aside, to strip them off, that we might live and behave as his children should. Now we might ask the question, but what will help with that? What can we do to, to foster this, to live rightly? Well, look what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter exhorts us to long for the pure milk of the word. Th that word implies a, a strong desire or a yearning. Think of a baby yearning, longing for milk. You know, it's not a passing fancy. It's not a fan passing desire here. It's a must. It's a necessity. He uses an interesting word for pure. Uh, in some translations, it says sincere. The word really means unadulterated, nothing added to it. You know, it seems like in so many things there's something else that's added, something uh, useless or harmful. But the word of God, Peter says, is absolutely good. It's absolutely pure. 
Now, a prerequisite to intensely yearning for the word of God is to put away sin, is to put aside those things that would impede our spiritual progress. And I think for no other reason than this, sin destroys the appetite for God's word. For a person who is trying to satisfy himself or herself with the things of the world, there's no appetite for the things of God, for the word of God. So a spiritually healthy Christian is someone who hungers for the word of God. And it is through the scriptures, obviously, that we know God. Verse 3 might throw us a little bit because it starts with the word if, um, which sounds like, you know, so-so, but it really would be best translated since. Uh, Since we've tasted of God's goodness, his kindness, we have the incentive to grow spiritually. King David spoke about this in Psalm 34 when he said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Okay, that's the first set. Here's the second. Abstain, keep. Look down uh, in chapter 2 at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we're exhorted to stay away from some things while embracing other things. And Peter reminds these believers and us that we're just passing through this life. I'm just mindful of John Bunyan's classic, you know, Pilgrim's Progress. We're pilgrims. We're passing through, sojourners, exiles. Um, This place is not our true home. It's not our ultimate home. And since that's true, Peter is appealing to us not to embrace the world's values and ethics and, and, and way of living. And we can see Peter's concern through his repetition. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Um, And then he lists these sins in chapter 2, verse 1. Turn ahead to chapter 4, and verses 2, and well, I'll start at 1, where he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The Apostle Paul likewise uh, lists some things that fit into passions that wage war against our soul. Look at this from Galatians chapter 5. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. We sometimes forget about the corrosive effects of these things. Why I think Peter says that they wage war against our soul. The soul being the real you, intellect, emotion, will. They they fight against that. And Peter says we're to put those things aside. We're to choose not to indulge in them. Oh, they might have characterized our lives before we trusted in Christ, but now that we've come to know him, put them aside. They shouldn't any longer be a part of that. And so he says, abstain. And then he adds, keep. Now, in your English translation, 
verses 11 and 12 are two sentences. But in the Greek text of the New Testament, it's just one long sentence. So these two things are related. It isn't just abstain from some things. It's also choose to embrace some other things. And when we do that, Peter says we live honorable lives before non-believers. And in one sense, we remove the grounds by which they might criticize us. Jesus spoke about the power of living a life that's pleasing to God. Maybe this is what Peter's thinking about. When in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Abstain, but key. Now there's one other thing that I see in this passage that we kind of have to link together, and that's proclaim and live. There is a purpose or an anticipated result of our identity as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Peter says it is that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We who have been born of God have been given a mission, and that's to tell others about the great works of God. And what greater work is there in our lives but God's love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and the gift of eternal life? This is the hope that's within us as Peter's been going on from the very beginning. It is the message that we've been transported out of darkness into light. What great terms are there to describe what happens when we come to believe in Christ, that we move out of darkness into light? So there's a verbal part of this, and there's a nonverbal part. In verse 12, Peter exhorts us to conduct ourselves in an honorable way. That is, live your lives, order your lives in an honorable way, in a way that honors God. There's a statement that's credited to Francis of Assisi, though in reality and in fact, he never said it. But it's this, preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words. Isn't that catchy? You know what the only problem is? It's not correct. It's wrong. Living a good and honorable life is important. We're commanded to do so. But our lives alone, even exemplary lives, are insufficient to explain the gospel. The gospel has content that has to be verbally presented in order for someone to to believe. So it isn't either or, it's both and. Honorable lives and verbal proclamation. Both are expectations that Peter said, all because of who you are in Christ, this amazing identity. And out of that then we proclaim and we live. Now verse 12, let me just read it again because I want to close with this. Uh, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That verse sets up the remainder of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3. Because Peter goes on to deal with three areas of life where this verse is to inform godly behavior. How a Christian is to relate to governing authority, 
how a Christian servant is to relate to an earthly master and how a Christian believing wife is to relate to her unbelieving husband. In each of those three, he's going to build out of verse 12 and is going to talk about then what does that look like? What does it look like in society? What does it look like in the marketplace? What does it look like in marriage? All from the perspective of a believer relating to non-believers, okay? Keep that in mind or, or you might have problems when you read through this passage that we're coming up to. But every one of those three dimensions or arenas of life have relevance to us today. And so that's where we're going to camp next week. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us clueless on how to navigate life, particularly when life is difficult. And so thank you for this letter that Peter wrote to those Christians that were really going through difficult times. And I pray that this letter would provide a solace, it would provide encouragement to those here that are going through difficult times. Would you keep reminding us of what you've set before us as our ultimate future, the wonderful hope we have of our destiny, and while it doesn't remove the trials from our lives, it encourages us and helps us to keep on keeping on. So thank you for your word, Father. May it continue to embed itself in our hearts and in our minds. In Christ's name I pray, amen.